Nanaimo bars, nanoplankton, narcotics, nativism, nautical, neanderthal, nebraska, necessitarian, nematode, nephesa, nephrology, and the list goes on. Those are letters starting with M, and I'm Jeremy Ullman, host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, the future of science. Welcome aboard. We're making graduate research unprecedentedly accessible one episode at a time. They were recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're talking about the future of science. Welcome to the show. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, what's happening in the brain during a seizure? Do babies have seizures? How do I know if I'm prone to developing epilepsy, and what can I do to mitigate its onset? What are the precursors and catalysts for the development of epilepsy throughout your life? What's the relationship between stroke and epilepsy? What's the opposite of a seizure, if there even is one? Do people experience seizure-induced hallucinations? Answers to these questions and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. So, what are we waiting for? Let's go. Nafisa Hussein recently graduated with a Master's in Public Health and Epidemiology at the University of Montreal. She's currently working as a clinical study coordinator and epidemiologist at the McGill University Health Center in Pediatrics Neurology, and is also a research associate at the Centre de Recherche de CHUM in epilepsy research. Her thesis is focused on the association between epilepsy and cardiovascular disease, or CVD, in the elderly, such as heart disease, myocardial infarction, and periventricular disease. Nafisa is starting her PhD in epidemiology this September, and her research will aim to uncover the causal variance between epilepsy and comorbidities, as well as finding and presenting solutions to improve neurological health. When she's not working, Nafisa enjoys going on hikes, watching movies with friends over Zoom these days, and baking way too many desserts, which I can totally get behind. Big fan of desserts right here. So without further ado, let us welcome Nafisa to the podcast. Nafisa, how are you? I'm good, Jeremy. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. This is very, very nice to have you on the show this lovely Thursday afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. This is this is going to be great. Now, this is the first time that we're talking about epilepsy on this show. Very excited to be diving into this topic, something that I've thought about for a number of years. I remember my cousin was babysitting me when I was about seven years old, and she used the word epilepsy, and I couldn't stop thinking of the word apple. I just thought it was like it has to do with someone eating an apple and then having some adverse reaction to it. Now I know that that's not actually the case. So why (laughs) don't we start off by clearing up or at least explaining what it is that epilepsy is. And we could even touch on seizures, which from my understanding are some of the results of epilepsy or symptoms. So epilepsy is a central nervous system disorder in which brain activity becomes abnormal, causing seizures or periods of unusual behavior, sensations, and sometimes loss of awareness. Anyone can develop epilepsy. It's not a particular age or a particular sex. Epilepsy affects both males and females of all races, ethnic backgrounds, and ages. Seizure symptoms can vary widely. Some people with epilepsy simply stare blankly for a few seconds during a seizure, while others repeatedly twitch their arms or legs. Having a single seizure doesn't mean you have epilepsy. At least two unprovoked seizures are generally required for an epilepsy diagnosis. 
And so treatments with medications are sometimes surgery, back in control seizures for the majority of people with epilepsy. And some people requires lifelong treatments to control seizure. But for others, the seizures eventually go away. And some children with epilepsy may outgrow the condition with age as well. Whoa. What's the youngest age that we generally see seizures cropping up? Do we have them in like infants before the age of one? Yeah. Even during a birth, some babies have seizures and they're diagnosed with epilepsy. Whoa. Okay. You did mention one kind of reaction during a seizure, which is just staring blankly. That's, as far as I'm concerned, not what the normal seizure, which is more of like a convulsive kind of thing. Is there a special name for that kind of seizure? Not really. Not really. Uh, And that's it. So even me, before even starting studying epilepsy, I really, you know, people uh, shaking or trembling, that's like the main thing that we know about epilepsy. But some of uh, the patients really have what's called blank stare. So it's a seizure. The electricity in the brain is not balanced. And that's the definition of a seizure. So sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't see it. But the person is definitely feeling it. Okay, so what are the different kinds of seizures that somebody can have? You mentioned that some are more physical and others are more blank. So let's just kind of cover the entire spectrum of different kinds of seizures. I'm curious. Yeah, so the two that you just named are the two different ones. It's either physical So you can see the person shaking, trembling, moving their bodies without any control. Or it's not muscular, it's not physical. The person is on a blank state, so they can't control their bodies, but they're not shaking. They just can't move. And so that's blank state. What's the difference in what's happening inside people's brains during these two kinds of seizures? So the physical one, the one that most people are familiar with, the imbalance is higher. And so that's why you reach the not controlling muscular type of thing. Whereas the blank state, there is still imbalance, electricity imbalance, of course, because you can't control your body, but it's not that high. It kind of sounds like what happens sometimes when you're sleeping and you're unable, like let's say you're having a dream and and you're unable to move, Mm -hmm. right? From what I do know about sleep, during dreaming states, our bodies actually go into complete, like, I don't even want to say paralysis, but essentially you lose all of your muscle tone. Mm-hmm. So you're like totally limp. I guess I just want to get a sense of like where your focus lies. Because in the introduction here, we've got a lot of different focuses. We've got epilepsy. We also got cardiovascular disease. Which one is your primary focus? Epilepsy because my bachelor's was in neuroscience. Okay. But it's mostly the epidemiology and the public health of it and not the clinical side of things. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, perfect. Okay, so you did start us off, which was great, with kind of a, almost like a demographic run through. And you basically said no one is safe <laughs> from <laughs> seizures, right? It could happen. Is there a certain age? I know, for example, with schizophrenia, it usually arises in like your, your 20s or your kind of like early adulthood. And then if you haven't gotten it by mid-age, you probably won't develop schizophrenia. Does the same thing apply to seizures? Can I start getting seizures at the age of 50 out of nowhere? Or is it the kind of thing that appears more early in life? So epilepsy has a genetic predisposition. So your chances increase by 30 to 40% if one of your parents have epilepsy. Mm -hmm. But other than that, there's no age really. Elderly are more prone to have epilepsy and infant as well. So it's like I think extremes, that would be the way to see it. So infants and elderly are the population to really target. Interesting. 
can I safely assume that the mechanisms or the precursors or the catalysts to developing seizures in young and very old age are different? Yes, you're right. Definitely. Elderly have way more chronic disease than infant. And so when infants have epilepsy and are diagnosed with epilepsy, it's mostly because of genetics and also how the birth went. So if, for example, if they missed oxygen, for example, then that will make scars in their brain. And for the, like after a few years, that's when the, the doctor will say, okay, maybe the infant has been diagnosed with epilepsy or not. Whereas elderly, you have your whole life to increase your chances to have epilepsy, whether it's cardiovascular disease that we're going to get into later, sociodemographic characteristic, lifestyle and behavior. So the elderly, it's way more, I guess, diverse than uh, infant. So there's no need to wait till later. Let's dive into it right now. (laughs) (laughs) If we truly can't escape, whether it's early in life or later in life, we all potentially can develop seizures or epilepsy later in life. What are the top three or, or top five precursors, catalysts for developing epilepsy? Let's just run through them. So stroke is the main trigger for epilepsy. 30 to 40% of the population who have epilepsy had a stroke within five years before their diagnosis. Whoa. So a stroke, just to make it clear, a stroke occurs when the blood supply to part of your brain is interrupted or reduced preventing brain tissue from getting oxygen and nutrients and so you have brain cells that are dying in your brain and so a stroke can directly damage parts of the brain that controls the heart and so that's where really we see the association between stroke epilepsy and then cardiovascular disease okay so before we keep on going to the other ones um that's so interesting so i I hadn't even thought about the fact that when you have a stroke right Mm -hmm loss of oxygen to a specific brain region is going to reduce the functioning. But in the case of the relationship here between stroke and cardiovascular disease, you're saying when people have a stroke, it's because the part of the brain that controls the heart is being damaged. Do we have reason to believe that when people have strokes, they more often than not, or more often than would be suspected, occur in regions that control the heart? Or are the potential side effects of having strokes extremely varied outside of, let's say, just loss of specific kinds of heart function? It's definitely varied. And of course, you won't know until you have the stroke and nothing controls the stroke, right? You don't know where the oxygen will be missing. You don't know how long you'll have the stroke. And Mm -hmm. so it's very, very unpredictable. Okay. So it isn't like stroke has this, this special affinity for reducing cardiovascular output or functioning. It could damage any bodily system. It could damage your, uh, your leg functioning. It could damage your arm functioning. It could damage your breathing functioning. And it could also damage your heart. Okay, good. That is clarified now. Okay, so stroke. That's the big one. Yes. And then the relationship between stroke and epilepsy is an interesting one. Let's hear it. Okay. <laughs> so if you had a stroke, you have an increased risk for having a seizure, like we just said. A stroke causes your brain to become injured. The injury to your brain results in the formation of scar tissues, which affects the electrical activity in your brain. And so disrupting the electrical activity can cause you to have a seizure. That's why 30 to 40% of the population who has epilepsy had stroke before. Do we know why the other 
60 to 70 percent aren't having this outcome that's my thesis <laughs> oh yeah hey we're there so let's let's get there usually it takes much longer to get into the thesis i'm very excited to hop right into it and we can kind of vacillate back and forth between some background and the deep dive into your research so let's okay so what'd you find out so what's going on like the general population cvd is the leading cause of death in people with epilepsy However, a greater risk of CVD has been reported in the population with epilepsy when compared with the general population. And so this phenomenon of vasculopathy in people with epilepsy can be partially, like we just said, can be explained by stroke. But what about the 70% of the population who didn't have a stroke? And so we wanted to look at the lifestyle and behavior, sociodemographic characteristics, and chronic disease, trying to explain why this association still exists in the population with epilepsy that didn't have any stroke. Okay, so when you say lifestyle, that seems like a catch-all phrase. Can we break that down? Definitely. What can I do in, in my life specifically to improve my lifestyle to help reduce the chances of developing epilepsy? Very good question. So the lifestyles and behaviors that we've been studying, we basically chose three that were highly related to CVD and also highly related to epilepsy, which were smoking, consumption of tobacco, consumption of alcohol, and exercise. So presumably more exercise is better. <laughs> it isn't that we want to get rid of all those things, right? Definitely. So those lifestyle and behavior definitely are associated with cardiovascular disease, are definitely also related to epilepsy. But what, what we saw was that people with epilepsy were smoking more, were drinking more, and we're doing less exercise. And so we can make hypotheses and say, okay, maybe that's why people with epilepsy have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And pretty important to say here that we're talking about associations here, not causation, because mm -hmm. our data were not longitudinal, meaning that we didn't have the temporal variable. And so we're just talking about risks and associations and not causation. We would need more data, longitudinal data to really make that causation statement. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually know if maybe people who have epilepsy are just less likely to exercise and more likely to smoke, maybe as a coping mechanism of some sort. Exactly, exactly. Mm. This, is, this is an issue that I've heard come up in many, many kinds of human research, where we know that there's a relationship between two things, we just don't know which one begot the other. <laughs> and that's why it's cool to have longitudinal data and that might be uh, research in PhDs so just because you have more time. So you can start with your PhD, you can start getting participants in your first year, do your protocol analysis, whatever, and then also get new participants at the end of like your five or sixth year. And then you can really do causations statements instead of looking at associations. But associations are also really cool. For sure. And like you're saying, this is the foundation, right? You first need to look for the association because if there is none there, there's no point running a longitudinal study in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I do want to kind of circle back because I'm, I'm, I'm still fascinated about, about seizures and I'd love to learn more. So I guess, first of all, how well do we understand what's happening in the brain and in the body during a seizure? Is it like very well defined or is this on the level of like consciousness? Like what is consciousness? It's definitely more studied than consciousness. There's lots of really advanced machines that can tell you exactly the level of electricity and imbalance that someone goes through when they go through a seizure. So we understand how a seizure works. We just don't understand how to, I guess, 
make the person who's having a seizure more functional, I guess, after the seizure. Because it's hard to control a seizure if it's your first time. Definitely after that, you're diagnosed with epilepsy, you have anti-epileptic drugs prescribed, and you are, you know, seen with a epileptologist or a neurologist for weeks, months, years, depending on how your seizure is strong or not. Now, your first seizure is, I think, the one that, you know, you're surprised, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know what's happening. And so that part, the, the onset, we're not sure yet, but we definitely know what works and what doesn't in terms of treatments. Mm -hmm. What's the opposite of a seizure? I would say sleeping, but I move during my sleep. So, <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm just trying to imagine because, I don't know, I've been doing a lot of reading and the more that I look for, and this could be confirmation bias, but the more mm -hmm. that I look, it seems like lots of phenomena come in pairs. And so I'm, I'm curious to know if there's like an anti-seizure. Oh, I just thought about it. I don't know if it's because you could still have blank seizures like we, we talked about. Mm -hmm. But what if someone is in a coma? then that mm -hmm. would physically be the opposite of actually having electricity in your body because when you're in a coma, you, you basically don't have anything going on muscularly. Mm -hmm. That's probably not a word, but... <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> but yeah, I would, the, the first thing I would think about, I think would be probably that, but I, I should check with an actual epileptologist, that's for sure, because I think you, prob you probably have electricity as well when you're in a coma because mm -hmm. you would be dead if you didn't have... Right. Yeah. but just highly reduced highly highly reduced yeah i just want to thank everybody who's reviewed the podcast so far just really great to hear how people are loving the show so thank you eliza thank you oac user thank you a listener f thank you vika sergeant thank you Alyssa dia thank you w scott thompson thank you daniel the reviewer thank you nadia b lost thank you big mike 774 thank you a train 9677 and thank you of course to Jack SMG Dubois. For the rest of you, I know you're out there. I want to hear what you think about the show. I do it for me, I do it for you, I do it for everybody. So hop on down to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and slide us a review. Let us know what you think. You also did comment earlier on how, you know, when you have a stroke, for example, that might damage a certain part of the brain that controls a certain part of the body. And you also said that, you know, during a seizure, this is when we have overactivity. So I'm, I'm starting to think about the connection between regions of the brain, activity, and parts of the body. If we have a seizure that's localized, let's say, in the visual cortex, the back of the brain, are we going to have visual hallucinations? Yes, that's how people, they can also hallucinate. There are patients that have seizures and after their seizures, first of all, don't remember, but others actually say, I saw someone, I saw three people around me wearing a blue t-shirt. I was in a forest. At, they fully hallucinate during their seizures. Yeah, that's definitely, pay, yeah, it's, it, it, it happens. Can people use those hallucinations as like an early warning sign that like there's an impending seizure? Because I've heard of people who can kind of feel it coming on. Mm. What kind of things do people experience that, that hint that a seizure is coming? Oh, so tickling, cold sweats. Some of them see uh, blurry around them. It's almost the feeling of fainting, but then you have a seizure instead of fainting. Mm -hmm. But about the hallucination, because I think this is really interesting, they don't control what they see. I've had a lot of patients at the shim where they would have a seizure and I would talk to them after. They would tell me what they saw 
And I asked him, I said, okay, but you know when a few seconds before sleeping and you kind of want to dream about something and you make everything possible for it to dream about like that specific thing, whether it's like a party you're going to go in the next few weeks or a trip that you're going to go, you put your mind into it so that you can dream about this. They can't do that. They can feel that they're going to have a seizure soon. They can prepare. Some of them actually sit down before mm-hmm. having a seizure so that they, they don't fall. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them go in their rooms to not do that in front of people, which definitely should bring someone, by the way, if you know that you're having a seizure so that you're not alone. But they can't really control what they see. Mm-hmm. And presumably, if there are visual hallucinations, you can have other kinds of sensory hallucinations as well. Definitely. Yeah. Auditory, that happens as well. It's not just visual. Some people told me that they would hear music, they would hear their mom talk, even though she wasn't around, etc. So it's definitely auditory and visual as well. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so do we know of any drugs that can be used to help with things like hallucinations and other symptoms? Yeah, there are many anti-epileptic drugs used to really control those hallucinations, control the seizures. But before talking about how anti-epileptic drugs work, just quickly on how the brain actually communicate, there are nerves that either excite or inhibit the electricity in our brain. And so seizure occurs when there's an imbalance within these excitatory and inhibitory circuits in the brain either through the brain, so generalized epilepsy, or in localized part of the brain. So that is also called focal epilepsy. There's two types of epilepsy. And so anti-epileptic medication work in different ways to prevent seizures by either decreasing excitation or inhibiting the whole circuit of electricity, which is, again, an imbalance. Specifically, they act by either altering electricity activity in neurons by affecting sodium, calcium, potassium, and chloride channel in the membrane, or they alter chemical transmission between neurons by affecting neurotransmitters. So here we're talking about GABA and glutamate in the synapses. So there are two different ways to control those imbalance in our brain during a seizure, but people with epilepsy really have to try many anti-epileptic drugs first to actually know which one works best because every brain is different and every seizure is different. What are the differences between each of the different kinds of drugs? It would be the level of how they excite or inhibit the neuron. Got it. Okay, so we have these three kind of different pathways that the or these these three different mechanisms by which these drugs can act. We're either talking about affecting the excitation or inhibition. We also have this kind of chemical route or the neurotransmitter route. Exactly. Okay, sweet. Definitely. So let's, let's maybe pivot a little more towards the discussion of cardiovascular disease. Because like, like you said, there's an intimate relationship between these two. And if I, if I recall what you said earlier, the, the relationship is via stroke. Is that like a mediating factor here? Exactly. So... People with epilepsy have a higher chance of having a cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease is very important. It's the name for the group of disorder of heart and blood vessels. The cardiovascular system, also called the circulatory system, comprises of the heart and all the blood vessels that Mm. pump and move blood through your body. But CVD are the number one cause of death globally. And so more people die annually from CVD than from any other cause. And I think two years ago, 
17 million people died from CVD. And so that represents 30% of all global deaths. And so because we know that CVD is the first reason people die, it's not surprising that we also see that in people with epilepsy. But what's surprising is why people with epilepsy have a higher chance of having a cardiovascular disease compared to the general population. Because epilepsy is a neurological disease, and then cardiovascular disease is definitely, of course, blood vessels and heart. And epileptologists didn't really see a biological um, immunity association between those. And so that's why we went for looking at the lifestyle and behavior, chronic disease, and sociodemographic characteristics to really see if there's another explanation than just biological. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mind-blowing that this this fact that uh, cardiovascular disease is one of the number one killers, it seems like it's something that's actually relatively well-known, but kind of ignored. Yeah. Like, this is something that I know. I know people who have had CVD, who have passed away from heart attacks. It's something that's in the media. It's in TV and movies, and it's kind of everywhere. But at the same time, I feel like it's not more talked about. Why aren't we more preoccupied with this? And by we, I mean the the general population at large. The thing is, there are so many factors, modifiable factors, around cardiovascular disease that we as human can control to decrease your chances of cardiovascular disease. And I think we got a bit tired of uh, hearing those, like exercise more, eat well, sleep well. All of these obviously decreases your chance of having a cardiovascular disease. And so I think we just are hearing the same thing over and over again. And we're just like, okay, like... We got, we, we got the message. It's so upsetting, though. <laughs> we're sitting here today. We're talking. Okay, you know what? Hold on. We've got to get real for a second. Listeners, turn the volume up one notch right now. Stop walking. Sit up. Listen closely. Nafisa, how are we going to affect real change in people today, right now? What can we do? I mean, I get eight hours of sleep every night. How many hours of sleep do you sleep every night? Seven, eight. Yeah. Seven, I love eight. sleeping. Okay. I need my yeah. eight hours. It's great. I read a fact today that the average human life is about 650,000 hours, okay? There's enough time in there to get eight hours a day. Is there not? Yes. Right? Yes, there is. I would gladly put 200,000 hours of my life towards sleep, yeah. as long as it can reduce the likelihood that it ends prematurely. Definitely. Right? I agree. Is there some kind of fact, some, some statistic that we can throw at people's faces that will maybe make this seem like it's more real and it's more of a problem that we need to address seriously? How can we get this into people's heads? I hope that the 17 million death made something or the, 30, the fact that CBD is, accounts for 30% of death worldwide. I hope that resonated. And also, I think the fact that we all know at least one person or maybe not, but that you've heard of, of people passing away because of uh, cardiovascular disease. It's very important. I know that we're getting the same message over and over again, but if it's something that we can control, there are some diseases that we can't control, but this this one, we can reduce the risk. And so the fact that we're sleeping on that is <laughs> a, bit, <laughs> is a bit frustrating. Maybe we got to dive into the numbers a little bit more. So Let's say I follow all of the doctors and the cardiologist recommendations about what I should do to reduce the risks. How, how much can I reduce those risks? Is it worth it, right? Maybe that's why people are becoming complacent. Maybe, yeah, if I change my eating habits 
and I, you know, eat less red meat and I exercise more often and I get eight hours of sleep, is that going to reduce my likelihood of developing CVD substantially enough that it's worth the effort or should I just go, ah, who cares? I'll just, I'll just throw the dice and then see how they land. It's definitely will make a significant change about the numbers. Everybody has also other characteristics that are different, right? Like sociodemographic, what's your income, uh, your marital status, your other chronic disease. There are so many things that can also affect your lifestyle and behavior. So it's pretty hard to have a specific number. But the fact that we know that there's an association, the fact that we know there's also a causation, because Obviously, there are so many research that have longitudinal studies about cardiovascular disease. So now it's not a matter of if it's longitudinal or not. It's yes, it, there is a significant association. But because every human is different and every human has also other characteristics than the lifestyle and behavior that we're talking about, which is sleeping, eating well, smoking and alcohol consumption, it's hard to tell people, I guess, a specific number. But I think what we have to remember is that it is significant and it will make a change in your life. You hear that, listeners? <laughs> Why would you be here if not to learn about something? Not just for the sake of learning, but maybe for the sake of, of creating change in your life, to take action. There's something called the G.I. Joe fallacy that I want to share, which uh, I don't know. Have you heard about this before, Nafisa? No. It's a psychological bias, essentially, where people believe that knowledge or just knowing something is half the battle. So if you just go out there and just read a book or listen to a podcast, then you'll just you'll have all the answers. You'll become a better person, you won't have to worry about anything. However, if you just have the knowledge rolling around in your head, it actually doesn't really do much. Essentially, it seems like we know, for example, that 30% of the world deaths yearly are due to CVD, and we're like, "Oh, I guess I know the fact now, which means I'm less likely to be susceptible to dying from a cardiovascular disease, but that's actually not how it happens. We need to affect change in our lives. I couldn't agree more, though. It was really well said. <laughs> I, I can't even say it better myself. I'm just getting riled today. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, sometimes we have discussions on this show that are about the wonders of memory and the brain and, you know, dust clouds in space, which I love. I love, but they're a little bit less grounded in our own health and, and, and livelihood. So when we're talking about things like epilepsy and cardiovascular disease, I just can't help but think that people are going to walk away from this podcast today and go, hey, I listen to Abstract, one of my favorite podcasts I listen to every week. And then just go on about their life without even taking any action. You know, they might sleep six hours. And then 30 years down the line, they're going to be scratching their heads saying, how on earth did I just have a myocardial infarction? Mm -hmm. But we'll know. <laughs> but we'll know. And everybody that listens to this abstract too. Exactly. So I guess, you know, there is maybe no solution as, as, as far as we've been able to find today. So I guess, first of all, some people, I, I hope, will listen to not only what we're saying, but what they've heard, what their doctor are telling them what the, the scientific community is telling them. And about this research specifically, we're talking about people with epilepsy, which is even a more vulnerable population. But I guess for the general population, it would be kind of sad to walk away from this because we don't have a neurological disorder, let's say you and me, for example. And 
The three behavior and lifestyle characteristics that we've studied were consumption of tobacco and alcohol and their level of physical activity. And so the fact that the general population can be healthy and not work with those characteristics that are modifiable is, of course, um, I would say sad. But I'm also hopeful that a lot, a lot of people are also respecting those criteria and also, you know, exercising, eating well. Yes, you can drink alcohol, of course, as long as it's not extreme and also not smoke. I would definitely not tell you to smoke. Mm-hmm. I think I'd agree with that one. Alrighty. So I do just want to quickly touch on the fact that you're starting a PhD in September, which is awesome. How did you and when did you decide that that was going to be the path you were going to take? That was probably the end of my second semester at Université de Montréal in epidemiology during my master's. I've had the chance to work at the epilepsy center at the SHUM and see, I've seen so many PhD students and master's students so into their research and not only dive in, but also being passionate about it to like share about the results, talking about their work. Also, really great supervisors, not only around me, but mine specifically. Shout out to Mark Kieser here, Dr. Mark Kieser. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was the, the time where I was like, you know what, I think a master's is enough to do a research, but not really enough to really get your own participants, follow them longitudinally, which we talked about, and really see a difference in whatever you're studying. So yeah, I think that's when I realized I wanted to do a PhD. Cool. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, because I know we have listeners who span all levels of the academic path, people who are undergraduates also go through their master's right now and I, I I just kind of I feel like it had been a while since I'd asked somebody how or why they decided the path they're on and because I've kind of caught you in between two degrees I figured a perfect opportunity so this brings us to my final question and I, I know we kind of addressed this a little bit because I went off on a tangent getting all uppity about what we want to tell the public and the listeners but the final question of the day is kind of a thought experiment in, in a sense. So I want you to imagine that you're standing at the foot of an auditorium, giant auditorium, thousand seater, packed to the brim, all eyes on you. What do you tell the audience? I would tell them to list all of the characteristics modifiable in their life. So, for example, you can't really, you know, control your income or you can't control some of the aspect of your life, but some of them you can. You can control what you eat most of the time. You can control how many times you see friends, etc., etc. And so what I would tell my audience would be to take a piece of paper to list all of those characteristics. Again, modifiable. I think modifiable is the key word. And to see how they can change them and maybe even transform them in a way where their health outcome will benefit that's awesome and that ties right back into this whole thing we got into before about taking action i love the idea of making a list that's excellent thank you so much for that it's a great way to top off the episode thank you i appreciate that so this was great i mean time flies it's crazy i cannot believe that it is already time for us to wrap up the episode so thank you so much nafisa for being here for sharing your boundless knowledge with us it's great (laughs) I hope to have you back on towards the end of your PhD and we could talk about all the lovely longitudinal work you've done. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeremy. Okay, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. 
Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. I want to personally congratulate you for contributing, either knowingly or unknowingly, to the latest fundraiser by Abstract for the Society of Canadian Women in Science and Technology, SCWIST. I'll be donating 10 cents for every listen on an episode with a female guest and $1 for every review of the podcast on iTunes between now and April 8th. I'll be tallying and posting all over social media to let you guys know how much we've raised. I've also got people matching my donation, so we're talking four times that initial value. I'm going to put a link to SCWIST in the description so you can check them out yourself. Thank you so much.